Hello and welcome to Mariner's Church. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Darius and I want to invite you into a time of worship and into the presence of God. Scripture says that we are to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. But if you're anything like me, so many times we come to a moment of worship and you don't feel like praising God. There's so many things that we carry from depression to hurt and defeat, disappointments and all kinds of other things. But I love the instructions in Isaiah 61 and 3. It says that we are to put on the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Mm, I love that scripture. You want to know why I love that? It's because there are so many things in our lives that are heavy. The spirit of heaviness. We carry doubts and hurts. We're in a pandemic. We have social issues happening all across the world. And all of these things are justified. But Isaiah is suggesting to us, it's saying that we are to trade those heavy things and put on a spirit of praise where we celebrate and we worship God and we magnify him in spite of the things that are happening in our lives. So in Psalms 104 and 5, it says that we are to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his course with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good. And his mercy is everlasting. His truth endures through all generations. Let us turn our eyes to Jesus, for he is our God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let us trade our garments. Let us put on the spirit of praise. We sing. Water you turn into wine. You open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like
Our God is the God who keeps his promises. He loves us, he's for us, and we never walk alone. Check out this story video of Carmina, who chose to trust God even when it didn't make sense. Who's that? You. That's me, your firstborn. Where did you get those pictures? I don't know, I just realized I had these. Look at how little Nana is, there's Danny. I clearly felt him say to my heart and my soul, do you trust me? And it was so real. It was so real, he was, he was asking me to trust him in what I could not see to trust Him in His Word that He will provide my every single need. Attention please. Please keep silent and relax. Keep the cuff at heart level. Start measurement now. You know, it's difficult when you're single because you're the sole provider, there's no other income coming. What if I lose my job? I'm at the bottom of the totem pole at work. I've only been there for five months. What if I lose my job? There's no other income that I can lean on. You know, I'm like, I've got to pay taxes this year. Um, my mom has been ill on her health. And now just throw in to that mix a pandemic, you know. And so when I thought about giving, um, it was scary. But I felt this peace and I felt like God said to me, do you trust me? Do you trust me that I can provide for you? Even when you cannot see where it's gonna come from or you can't see what's gonna happen. Do you trust me, Carmina? And so I selected the amount and selected reoccurring and decided to just be obedient and to trust him at his word. And so I did. And. It was such a wonderful feeling of peace that just came over me right at that moment when I decided and I just let go. I literally just let go. And I felt this warm peace, like arms just coming around me, his arms and, and just telling me that everything was gonna be okay. Now it's going on four months now that I've, I've started giving um, and I haven't changed the amount. I continue to give every single month. You know, God has been so good to me. He's given me so much already. So I really wanted to give from my heart because I truly, not because I had to, but because I truly wanted to give to Him in an act of worship, in an act of, I love you, Lord, and everything that I have is yours. Oh, my soul, 
There are so many reasons to give thanks to God. It's such a joy to be worshiping with you today. You know, there's a, a children's story that goes something like this, that once upon a time in an Italian city, they had built this, this beautiful tower that was admired by everyone who, who passed through it. Well, in a, further down the road, in a second neighboring city, they had also constructed and built their own tower, which was also admired by those who walked through it. So there were two towers which were equally prominent and admired. Well, over time, that second city, being envious of the originality of that first city, they decided and they hatched a plan to destroy that first tower. And so they showed up in the middle of the night to that first tower with, with picks and shovels and, and weakened its foundations. But what happened was that the tower leaned over to one side without collapsing. I mean, as you can imagine, this leaning tower had the exact opposite of effect of what they had intended. This tower only grew in prominence. It, it only became more famous so that more people talked about that first tower than the second tower. So this infuriated the people of the second city. And so they decided to do the same thing with that tower, with their own tower. And so they took picks and shovels and weakened its foundations. But of course, you can imagine what would happen instead of just weakening its foundations, it not only leaned over, but the tower collapsed, bringing its city to destruction. This children's story, it's not just the origin story of the leaning tower of pizza. Okay, I made that up, please don't Google that. It is not the origin, tower, origin story of the leaning tower of pizza, but it is a cautionary tale about what can happen when we don't enjoy the good things that we have, and instead we allow envy to to fill our hearts and overcome us. But if I could just confess something honestly, I, I, I don't know if envy is, is that big of a deal. You know, our church, we're currently finishing up a series in the seven deadly sins. Last Sunday, Pastor Eric preached a sermon on overcoming wrath and anger. Next Sunday, Pastor Kenton, he's gonna share on, on lust. I mean, to me, I, I think those things are serious sins. I mean, those are explosive, powerful sins which kind of makes me wonder, you know, why I have to preach on envy. Like, I don't know why I couldn't preach on something more like explosive and kind of more exciting, um, but I, I digress. But, you know, I don't really struggle with envy. Uh, and I, I don't think many of us do, or, or at least that's what we think. I mean, think about even culturally. Think about the way our culture talks about envy. We use that term, I mean, even as a, as a form of flattery, don't we? We say things like, hey, congratulations. Oh, I envy you so much. I mean, we've even assigned it a color. We say green with envy. I mean, if you're sad, you're, you're blue. But I mean, if you're envious, you're, you're just green. It's almost seen as something a bit innocuous. But what's fascinating and, and a bit alarming is that the Bible colors envy so differently. In fact, in the scriptures, we're gonna see a story today that reveals maybe some of the truest colors of envy and how dangerous it really is. But before we get to the story, we first have to clarify and maybe define what envy is. You know, often we use the term envy or jealousy kind of interchangeably as if there's, they're the same things, when in fact, they're, they're quite different. See, jealousy, jealousy is, is really the possessiveness of what is rightfully one's own. It's, uh, and that makes jealousy 
something that could be negative, but it could also be something positive. For example, think about a spouse. A spouse should rightfully be jealous for one's, the affections of one's own spouse because those affections, well, they rightfully belong to him or her. And so in the same way, God is sometimes described in the Bible as, as being jealous because God is, the, God's glory belongs rightfully to him. So he should be jealous for his glory or even his people. God can and he should be jealous for the affections and allegiance of his people because we're the bride of Christ. We're the people of God. But while the, while the Bible describes God as being jealous, the Bible never describes God as being envious. This is because while jealousy is the possessiveness of what is rightfully one's own, envy is, it's the covetousness of that which belongs to another. It's the obsessive craving, uh, it's the, the, the bitterness and the painful sorrow that arises because of what we do not have when we see somebody else. When we see the blessedness of someone else, it's the pain that we feel from that. I love how the poet and the author, Dorothy Sayers, she put it this way. She said, envy is the state of mind that hates to see other men happy. It asks, why should others enjoy what I may not? Today uh, in the scriptures, we're, we're gonna see a story that demonstrates this, this state of mind, this obsessive craving from what we do not possess. The story that we're gonna see, it's not a story of two towers, but it is a story of two brothers. But like the story of two towers, we see how envy leads to destruction. We see this in, in Genesis four. The stage is set for us in verse two. Here's how it reads. Now Abel, that's one of the brothers, became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain, that's the other brother, he worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So immediately from the, from the get-go, we kind of see the tension that set up. We have two brothers, Cain, he worked uh, the produce, he worked the ground. Abel, his younger brother, he worked with the flock. He, he was almost like a shepherd. And what we find is that they both bring an offering to the Lord, but Cain's offering is not accepted, but Abel's offering, it is accepted. Now, some have wondered, well, why is this the case? Why, why was Abel's offering regarded, but not Cain's? You know, some scholars have cited that it's really a, a categorical issue, that Abel, um, the reason why Abel's offering was accepted was because kind of the, the, the flock and the animals was a foreshadow of of the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, whereas Cain, uh, he worked the ground which was cursed uh, in the previous chapter in Genesis. Others have said, no, we don't know if it's like a categorical issue. We think it's a quality issue. Because after all, in the text, it does say that Abel, he, he brought you know, uh, the fat portions. He brought the best of the offering. And so some have said it's, it's a quality issue. Others have said, sure, maybe it's a quality issue, but they said it's, it's really a motivational issue. After all, it does say in Hebrews 11:4 that, that Abel, he brought by faith, he brought an offering to God, which was acceptable to God. To be honest, it's probably a combination of these things, but the text doesn't clarify 
why Cain's offering wasn't accepted. But what the text, as we'll soon see, what the text does clarify is Cain's response. And his response, oh, he fell deeply into envy. And in the rest of the story, we're gonna see three dangerous and deadly effects of envy. Here's the first one. Envy robs us of enjoyment. Envy, it robs us of enjoyment. We see this almost right off the bat in Cain's response. In verse five, it continues, Cain was furious and he looked despondent. I mean, the literal translation of that is, is that Cain became very angry and his face, his face fell. He sulked. Cain fell into an angry depression, which I mean, on the one hand, I guess I understand because you know, who doesn't want their offering to be regarded by God? But think about it, on the other hand, Think about the opportunity that Cain has here. He has this unique relational dynamic with God where he's, he's, he gets to bring something to God and God responds to him. I mean, could you imagine wherever you are, whether you're worshiping online at home or doing Mariners hosted at home, or maybe you're singing at one of our neighborhood gatherings. If you finish the song and God audibly responded to you, what an amazing, would that beat any other worship experience? Cain had that kind of a relational, intimate, unique dynamic with God. In fact, God goes on to coach him and instruct him. He says in verse six, he says this, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. I mean, you talk about an accountability partner. This is the Lord speaking directly to Cain and Cain hearing it and responding to it. it it's an incredible privilege that Cain has. And yet he sees none of that. He experiences none of that joy. And that's what envy does. It robs us of enjoyment. It steals away the very joy and enjoyment of the things that we should actually enjoy. We cannot enjoy that which we should enjoy because of us seeing what others are enjoying. You know, last Sunday, last weekend, we heard that anger of all the seven deadly sins, it might be the most fun. Well, a writer, an author named Joseph Epstein, he says of envy that of the seven deadly sins, envy is no fun at all. And this makes sense. You know, when someone has a moment of anger or lust, there's this momentary thrill or excitement. But envy? Envy just, it sucks. It just sucks out all the joy, all the enjoyment, and all the pleasure. This is because um, envy actually infects you and I with a disease. Did you know that? It's called the disease of Ur. That's right, the disease of Ur. And here's how it works. Maybe you go on vacation and you come back and, oh, you're just so thankful for this great vacation that you've had. You're, you're praising God, you feel content. Well, that is until you find out that your friend also went on a vacation and you found out that this vacation was nice-er. And of course it was nice-er because, well, they're rich-er. And of course they're pretty-er and bet-er. And so trying to distract yourself, you, you go on Instagram and you scroll through and then you see these other people who seem godly-er. And so at that moment, you're convicted. And so here you are 
just agonizing and wanting a life and a circumstance that you do not have, but then the very vacation, the very trip that you were giving thanks to God just a moment ago, you're now looking with contempt and dissatisfaction. That's what envy does. It just robs us of our enjoyment. And that's what it did with Cain. Cain has this amazing relationship with God, but that enjoyment is taken away because Abel's sacrifice was better. Envy robs us of enjoyment. But when that happens, it leads to a second effect, which is that envy ruins our relationships. Envy ruins our relationships. We see this in the text in verse eight. It says, Cain, he said to his brother, hey, Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? If you've ever heard the phrase, envy kills, we see in this story more clearly than ever, envy kills. Literally, we see a brother murdering his own brother to the point that when God confronts him and says, hey, what happened? He says of his murdered brother, I'm not his babysitter. How could Cain respond this way? How could he be so deceived? Well, this is the danger of envy. You see, envy takes us to a place where we cannot even relate with others objectively. And here's why, because for envy, when we feel the sting and the bitterness and the sorrow that envy produces, we can't help but, but retreat into self-preservation. And how we preserve ourselves is one of two ways. One, we preserve ourselves through indifference and apathy so that we can create distance so that we don't have to acknowledge their success or their advantages. Or we preserve ourselves through aggression through sabotaging and undercutting and backbiting. And so in so doing, either route we take, we are, we are uh, bringing turmoil and strife into these relationships. That's why James 3.16 says that where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile practice. Disorder in every vile practice. We see disorder even in family relationships, as we see with Cain and Abel. We can see disorder even amongst friends as we try to keep up with the Joneses or the Kims. We see disorder even in work relationships. In fact, there was a fascinating 2008 study where researchers, or, uh, they, they studied uh, what caused organizational failure. And what they discovered and found out was that one of the causes, they made a direct link to envy. That because of envy, there was reduced productivity, there was departure, there was outright sabotage. In fact, here's how badly envy can ruin relationships. In the gospels, in the gospels in the New Testament, the writers, they note that when the religious leaders handed Jesus over to be crucified, it says that Pilate knew, he knew that they had handed him over on account of envy. It was because of envy that the religious leaders tried to crucify Jesus himself. I remember many years ago, I was sitting with, um, with a friend of mine. He was also a pastor. We we're sitting at Starbucks and, and catching up and talking about life. 
And he had shared with me that he, he got an invitation to speak at a church in New York and that he had booked a flight and that he was going to head over. And he was asking me for prayer, saying, hey, can you pray that God would do a great work? You know, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but in that moment, I actually forgot that he was asking me for prayer. I actually forgot that this guy was my brother in Christ. I forgot that he was a fellow co-laborer in the gospel. Instead, in that moment, my heart closed up with envy and I thought, why not me? Why this guy? Envy ruins our relationships. And when that takes full effect, this leads to the third and final effect. Envy resigns us to isolation. Envy resigns us to isolation. We see this happen with Cain in verse 10. Then God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood, it cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. One scholar said, a translated literally as a wandering fugitive, without roots, without a people, on the move. A restless wanderer, a wandering fugitive. This is because as we isolate ourselves as a, cope, as a coping mechanism, our world becomes reduced to that of me against the world. Envy robs us of enjoyment. It ruins our relationships and it resigns us to isolation. Envy is devastating. It is a green-eyed monster that seeks to consume our souls and our lives. Are you currently struggling with the enemy of envy? Is envy something that you need to overcome? Do you feel like a, a restless wanderer? You know, often I, I don't feel like I struggle with envy, but I'm reminded that sin is crouching right there at the door and that it's desirous for me because, oh, I'm so ashamed to admit this, but I have this impulse when, when something kind of good happens to someone and something in me goes, darn. But then something bad happens to somebody else and, and, and something in me says, yes. Oh, I hate that that impulse is in me. I'm so ashamed to admit that, but, but that's a sign that sin is crouching at the door and that God is inviting me to overcome envy. So how do we do that? Well, the short answer is that we overcome envy with contentment. But we can cultivate contentment in a few ways. There are two ways. Here's the first way. We overcome envy with jealousy. We overcome envy with jealousy. Now, I realize that may be a little confusing. I am not saying that you replace one vice with another vice. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying uh, that you will stop being envious of someone if you'll just be jealous of someone else instead. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you will be able to overcome envy when you see and savor the astounding, jealous love that God has for you because you belong to him. All right, I'm gonna start preaching now, you ready? Here's the incredible reality that God, he is jealous for his people. 
God loves his people and desires the affections of his people. I mean, this isn't because God is lonely and, and you know, he, he's saying, oh, please love me. That, that's not why. No, it's because we belong to him. He has redeemed us. He has brought us to himself in his death and in his resurrection. We have right standing. We're the bride of Christ. And so when you and I, when we turn to other things, when we find satisfaction in other things besides God that stirs up his jealousy. Think about this. The creator of the universe is filled with jealousy. When you and I turn to lesser things, that's incredible. That's astounding. And that's true because of the gospel. And the gospel says this, that Jesus, he was the older brother that Cain could not and would not be. See, Cain, he preserved his own life by sacrificing his brother. But Jesus, no, he lays down his life for his brothers and his sisters, for you and me. And so when he died on that cross, his blood was spilt just like Abel's blood. But here's the difference. When Abel's blood was spilt, it cried out justice against Cain. But when Christ spilled his blood, it cried out that justice was accomplished on our behalf because he took the place for our sins. But it also cries out and declares justification over you and me, that you and I now have right standing with God. This is why Hebrews 12, 24 says that the blood of Christ, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And this is why it says that in Hebrews 2, that Jesus, he's not ashamed to call you and me his brothers. We do not have an older spiritual brother who is green towards us in envy. We have a brother who was red for us in sacrificial love. That's who Jesus is to us. And because of that, that's why God the Father can look at you and me with jealous love. I mean, this is astounding, but if you even think about the, the commands of the Old Testament, it has the exact same emotional logic. In the Ten Commandments, we see early on in the first two commandments that God roots obedience in his affection for them. He says, don't turn to other gods. Don't make graven images because I am a jealous God. He roots their obedience in his affection. As if to say, if you see how much I love you, you will not even feel compelled to turn to these other sins. And the last one, the 10th one, you shall not covet envy. So if God motivated his Old Testament people with his affections for them, how much more should we be moved with affection to see Jesus, not the one who came down from the top of Mount Sinai, but the one who came from the throne of heaven for you and me. You know, what's interesting is when I see this incredible gospel, it starts to produce an effect in me. And here's one. It allows me and it frees me to enjoy what I have. I can begin to enjoy the things that I possess in my life because now I can see what I have in a totally different light. Because now I realize, wait, are you kidding me? I have Jesus, the creator of the universe. I have relationship with, he, he's my friend, he's my savior. And then on top of that, I get to enjoy all these other little gifts in relation to him? Are you serious? Are you kidding me? He fills my heart up that much. But in addition to that, he provides me with gifts. So where I can say, oh my gosh, like I know that the grass is greener on the other side, but you're telling me I have Jesus and then I have some grass on top of that. 
Wait, who cares about grass? I have Jesus. I have Jesus. See, when you see and savor Jesus, you get to savor and enjoy all the other little gifts. But if you don't savor Jesus, even the best of circumstances over time will begin to sour. And this is the power of contentment. Contentment is, is our hearts, our souls, taking a sigh of relief because we have Jesus. It's the deepest part of our, our hearts relaxing because you and I have a father who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. So wouldn't he in his wisdom and in his sovereign timing also grant us other things? And in so doing, we can be content and enjoy what we have. But this can happen as we see his jealous love over us. We overcome envy with jealousy, God's jealousy for us. Here's the second way. We overcome envy by praying for those we envy. By praying for those we envy. Billy Graham said, you cannot pray for someone and hate them at the same time. I love this quote, it's, it's so profound because I think he rightly captures the nature of both things, namely that, that they come from the heart, but they also simultaneously affect the condition of the heart in the duration of its activity. When I hate, I hate from the heart, but the more that I hate, the sicker my heart becomes. I pray from the heart, but the more that I pray, the healthier my heart becomes. And so the logic being, well, if you struggle with hatred towards someone, if you pray for them over time, the prayer will override the sickness that comes from hatred. Now I realize, you know, we might be saying, well, I don't hate the person that I envy. And that might be true. After all, they might be a family member or a friend, but, it, but that's the danger of envy is that it kind of deceives us to view the person that we envy almost as an enemy. And this is why one of the most powerful things that you and I could do is to pray for them. As Jesus said, to pray for your enemies. And here's how we pray. We don't simply pray, God, please help me not to envy. No, no. We pray, we go for the jugular of envy. We go for the kill. We pray, Lord, I pray that you would bless that person. In fact, would you make them more successful, make them more blessed than they are now? And could you imagine if later down the road, if you saw and, or ran into that person and said, hey, I want you to know I'm cheering for you. I'm praying for you. Could you imagine what that would do to your heart? It would make your heart an uninhabitable place for envy. Envy would not be able to survive in your heart. And that's what happens when you and I pray for those we envy. We heard the story of two towers. We also heard the story of two brothers. There's another story, a story of two realities. And this is a story that you're on and that you're in. One reality is the long and bitter road of discontentment and bitterness. But the other road, it's the road where you get to see and savor Jesus, the one who loves you with a jealous love. Let's go down that road. It's the better way to live.
Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I'm unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections for me. Oh, how he loves us so.
Mariners, we have such a generous God. He is a cheerful giver. He's given us his son. And I love that we're the kind of church that mirrors and mimics his generosity. I'm so proud to be a, a part of a church like Mariners. You, we are a generous church. And because of that, we're seeing the gospel advance all across Orange County, but also in so doing, we're seeing contentment advance in our own hearts because that's the power of generosity. It frees our hearts from the grip of discontentment. And so if you're currently not given, I'd invite you to give. You can give online. You can text the number below. That's how my wife and I give. It's a great way to see God work all across Orange County, but also in our hearts. Would you hold out your hand as you receive God's blessings? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week.